Ferris B'nai Torah presents The Schmooze, an engaging and motivating Musar and Hashkafa series that deals with real-life issues. Okay, we want to thank Mrs. Geld for sponsoring tonight's uh, food at tonight's Schmooze in honor of Shirley's birthday. Happy birthday. I was having a, a number of years ago, I was learning with a young man who was then in dental school. He was then not from, and we were studying Chumash, and we got to Shemos, we were learning about the Makas, we were learning about Yisidus Mitzrayim, and at a certain point he said a line to me, he said something like, Rabbi, this stuff is great with the splitting of the seas and the frogs and the blood, it, 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 it's so great. If, if God would show me one miracle, I would surely believe in him. And I didn't really stop then to think about it, but afterwards I realized that this fellow said something that I think a lot of people assume is true and actually isn't. And a lot of people really walk around with this assumption that if in fact Hashem would show me one miracle, one sign, one divine <coughs> oath, then I would believe in Hashem. Or I would in- intensify my, my emunah. And I think that it's not so true, and I'll bring you an interesting illustration to that point. The reason why Hashem brought ten makas on the time, ten separate plagues, and in fact, the reason why Hashem took out the Jewish nation from Mitzrayim is very clearly written in the Pesukim. Hashem did this to show the Jewish nation His strength, His might, His glory. And yet, the Egyptians lived through the entire scene, they lived through the entire experience, and they did not become believers in Hashem. They didn't just turn around and say, wow, I, I, I get it. Hashem created the world, Hashem runs the world. Not only didn't they get it, but throughout the entire experience of the Matas, throughout the splitting of the sea, throughout the entire scene, the Mitzrim stubbornly refused <coughs> to see the point. And miracle after miracle, time after time, did not change their opinion. And I think as we start to look at some of the events of what actually trans- transpired, I think we'll find it very, very, very eye-opening as to how Imuna, how belief works, and in fact, I think we'll get an interesting illustration as to whether a person will be forced to believe by miracles or not. So first, one important observation. The entire Jewish nation were slaves in the triumph for 210 years. It was time for the Bnei Israel to leave, and Hashem decided to take the Bnei Israel out in a very particular way. Now, it's obvious that Hashem is omnipotent. God is all-powerful and Hashem could have taken the Jewish nation out of Mitzrayim in any which way Hashem wished to. Yet Hashem took out the Bnei Yisrael in a very particular and exact manner and before anything happened Hashem told Moshe exactly the plan. And the Pesukim is very clear when Hashem says the reason why I'm going to do it this way is because number one I want the Mitzrayim to see and number two I want the Bnei Yisrael to see my strength, my power. And then the Pesach says something very interesting. The Pesach says, I want the Bnei Yisrael to see that I played. Hisalalti is a language of I toyed with. Which I played with the Mitzrayim in Mitzrayim. 
And the reason is because one of the fundamental bedrocks of our emunah is Yitzhiyas HaShayim. We, some now 3,300 years later, relive that experience. It's not just Pesach, it's not just one night of the year during the Seder, but every day, twice a day during Shema, there's a mitzvah to remember Yitzhiyas HaShayim because that is the, the foundation, it's the bedrock of our Amunah. It's the one time in history when Hashem revealed Himself clearly, showed His power, and it's something that we're supposed to reflect back on. And I think as we'll soon see, much of what Hashem did in that Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim was exactly to demonstrate Hashem's power, Koach, and to demonstrate Hashem's power. So let's analyze for a moment some of what went on in Mitzrayim, what it was like, particularly not from a Jewish person's perspective, but what it was like from a Mitzri's perspective. So I want you to imagine for a minute, if you would, and, and to do this I had to find Egyptian, ancient Egyptian names, and I, I really, I one time did this research and I couldn't find, I really tried to find, the best I could come up with was Muhammad and Nachmad. So imagine for a minute, Muhammad is standing there at the, uh, at, the, at the Nile. What he's doing is he's watering his cows, and the Nile would overflow and all these irrigation ditches would fill up with water and his friend Muhammad comes to him and says Nachman, Nachman, did you hear? What, what, what? Well, this tall, majestic Hebrew came into, came into Paro and he said he's going to turn all the water in all of Egypt into blood yeah, right, right, right no, 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 he talked about this super god this god who controls the heavens and the earth and he's going to turn everything into, into blood yeah, right, 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 cut me break now obviously Nachmad has served many different idols in his day. He's heard about many gods, and he certainly is not impressed with any of this stuff. But, lo and behold, on the day, exactly as Moshe Rabbeinu said it was going to happen, all of the water in Mitzrayim turns into blood. Now let's understand what that means. If Nachmad is there, standing at the Nile, and he sees the water turn into blood, it's not just the water in the Nile, it's not just the water in the ditches. Keep in mind, there was no running water in Mitzrayim. Water was brought from the Nile, or from the runoff, to barrels brought to the houses, and it's very clear that every drop of water, wherever it was gathered, <coughs> turned from water into blood. That means, if a mystery hid away a barrel of water, if he had a jug somewhere, if he had it hidden way deep in his basement, if Muhammad even took the time to listen and say, maybe, maybe there's some truth to this, and he hid away some water in his bathtub, it turned into blood. Now, there's a very particular point that the Svona makes. The Svona says that the fish died. And the Svona says that that's an important point that the Pasuk clearly tells us. Why? Because water is very different chemically, constitutionally, than is blood. The fish died because the water didn't turn a tinted color. It's not like the water got a color of red, but the chemical properties, the physical properties of the water were converted to blood. Now water is thin, odorless, colorless. Blood is thick, it smells and it's globulous. The metzias, the entity of the water changed into blood so that it had all of the physical properties, so that the fish in the Nile, the fish in any agam, in any lake, couldn't breathe because their gills couldn't separate the oxygen from blood because it was too thick. Now that's a shinuit tether, that's a change in nature that's so fantastic, that's so beyond the pale, that you would say at least it caught the mystery's attention. 
Now keep in mind, it wasn't just the water in the bathtubs and the water in the barrels and the water wherever it was made hidden. If a Mitzri took a fruit and bit into it, he bit in and received, instead of fruit juice, he got out of that blood. When he spat, instead of spitting water, saliva, he spat blood. Wherever he was, whenever he was, it was, instead of water, it was blood. There was, however, one way that a Mitzri could drink water. And the Medrash tells us that if a Mitzri purchased water with money from a Jew, then it would remain water. So if you can imagine for a minute, again, let me go back to my buddy Muhammad over there. Muhammad standing in the field, and all of a sudden he sees Yitzhak. And Yitzhak is there drinking water. And Muhammad says, get over here, boy. Yitzhak, get here, Isaac. What's that you're drinking? And Isaac goes, oh, sir, it's some water. I know it's water. Wipe that smirk off your face, boy. Now, well, drink that again. And Yitzhak drinks water. Now, come here, come here, give me that cup. And as Yitzhak takes, now listen to what the Gemara says, as Yitzhak takes this cup of clear, crystal, clear water, hands it to Muhammad, it turns, as it transfers from Yitzhak's hand to Muhammad's hand, from water to blood. Muhammad, take that back. And when he gives it back, it transfers from blood to water. Water to blood. Now you have to understand the amazement that this person should have understood at this time. And imagine for a minute if Muhammad was a little bit of a wise guy, and he said, Yitzhak, now come here, stand here, drink that. And as Yitzhak drinks water, Muhammad said, okay, listen to what? You're going to hold a cup, and we're going to drink from that cup at the same point. I'm going to say, one, two, three, I'm three, you're going to drink, I'm going to drink. And no tricks, boy, I'll whip you. One, two, three, and as Yitzhak drinks water, Muhammad is drinking blood from the same vessel. Now you and I both know that that's physically impossible. It can't be. But it wasn't like some kind of Musa Shmuz that Muhammad was hearing, he was experiencing a nace. He was experiencing a miracle of extraordinary proportions by the fact that wherever he hid the water, wherever he hid it, it turned to blood, the only way that it remained water was if he purchased it with money. But if he stole it from the Jew, it turned to blood. That means every transaction, every action was being watched. And that's something that the midstream saw. And again, you would assume that they became tremendous Bali Amuna. But they didn't. Now each Maka lasted seven days, three weeks of warning and seven days of the Maka itself. And it's very interesting to, there's some interesting observations about each Maka. Here's one I want to share with you. The story is told that the Chavetzayim was once sitting alone in Chumash and he began laughing. Mamish laughing out loud. And some of the people close to the time said, Rebbe, what's shot laughing? We'll learn Chumash. So the time said, I'll tell you, I was just learning about Sardea. And I'm imagining Paro, big important Paro, sitting on his throne. And all of a sudden there are frogs. Frogs under his, under his pants. Frogs under his seat. Frogs there. Frogs jumping. Frogs all. It's funny. Now gentlemen, think about it. It is comical. There were many, many, many different ways that Hashem could have taken out the Jews in Mitzrayim. There are many ways Hashem could have shown His power. Why did Hashem choose these manners? Dam, Svardaya, frogs. Why frogs? You know why? Because again, Hashem was saying something. I'm going to play with the Mitzrayim. I'm going to toy with them. And in fact, if you think about it, the Maka of Sardaya. Now I have little kids that say that we love this. I mean, we, we usually have little frogs that try to, especially little kids that try to enact each of the Makas. So we, frogs, we do pretty good. We always have a little frog hanging from the chandelier. We have jumping frogs, big frogs, little frogs, stuffed frogs. But think about this. Listen to what the Pusik says. 
The Pasuk says, Hashem says to Moshe, I'm going, I want you to go to the Nile, <coughs> and I want the Svardim, plural, the many Svardim, to come up. But the Pasuk says that when Moshe Rabbeinu went to the Nile, and Aaron lifted the staff, it was Vayal HaSvardeya, the singular, the one Svardeya, came out of the Nile. Says Rashi, you know why that is? Because in fact, that's what happened. There was one Svardeya, one large frog came out of the Nile and began marching up the main thoroughfare to Paro's house. At which point, one of the guards saw this frog and went smash to hit it. At which point, the frog split. So the guard saw two frogs and hit that one. Boom! And that split. Hit those and split. Hit, split, hit, split, hit, split until you had a millions, millions, and millions of frogs. Now, General, listen to what I'm saying to you. I guarantee if you go to the woods, you take a stick, and you smash a frog, it will not split. It will splatter. They don't, it doesn't happen. In the real world, you don't hit a frog and you get two frogs. It just doesn't work that way. In the real world, when you take a frog and you smash it, it gets mushy in its, its brains. Right? It's a, what were they thinking? They were living through such nisim, such miracles of like unimaginable proportions. And you want to hear something interesting, by the way? The stipler asks a very interesting question. The stipler says, wait a minute. I understand one sardea comes up, one frog comes up, and you hit it, and it splits. They hit it, splits. Don't the Mitzvah get the message? Listen, you have ten frogs. Now, ten frogs in a big country like Mitzvah, I think you can live with ten frogs. Not like such a big deal, right? Ten frogs, you can live right? So why didn't they just stop hitting the thing? Says the stipler, you know why they didn't? Because these frogs were so annoying and so obnoxious, they climb up the legs and climb in the shirt, and they, get out of here, oh, get out And they caught it with this, smashing it. That means for days it was smashing and hitting and sitting in his, and you have to understand, by day two, there were frogs in every corner, every part of the land, there were frogs in the shirts, in the beds, and you know what it's like to lie down in your bed, rivet, 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 rivet. Now it's not particularly painful, but darn is it annoying. <laughs> I mean, try sleeping at night. Try sleeping. Finally, after eight hours of putting up these notches, you put your head down. Get out of here, Kermit. Oh, you stupid thing. And you put your head down and then jump under your neck and in your neck. And it makes you a sugar. But that was the point. Hashem wasn't torturing them. Hashem wasn't killing them. Hashem was saying something. I'm playing with you. Get the point? Listen up. But they didn't listen up. They didn't get the message. They didn't get the message. And for seven days, now you have to imagine what this means. For seven days, they lived in the state. And you'll excuse me, if, if the public says Hashem toyed, we're allowed to have a little fun. I want you to imagine again my buddy Muhammad. Now Muhammad is already day three, day four of the frogs. He's already, he's not sleeping at night. He's not, but you have to understand, the psukim are very clear that these frogs were on, a, they were on a kamikaze mission. Not only would they jump into the ovens to sacrifice themselves, they literally jumped down the throats of people so that they would rip it from their innards, so that you'd have <laughs> from inside the stomach of a guy. Now, I ain't never had a frog inside my stomach, but I have to imagine it's mighty uncomfortable. So imagine you got Muhammad, our buddy over there, and he saw his buddy Nachman, who got one of those frogs down, rip it, rip it, and said, I ain't getting one of those down my throat. No way. Day four, I know Moses warned about three more days. I am not getting a frog down my throat. So he clenches his jaws, and for the next three days he plans to walk around like this. These obnoxious frogs may bother me, but not getting down my throat. And he's doing fine. He tries to eat his cereal with a frog. <laughs> but he's able to live until day five. Because day five, he looks up at the windowsill, 
and he sees a frog and he goes left and the frog goes left he goes right and the frog goes right he ducks down and the frog ducks I'm being stalked by Kermit by Kermit and he knows that Kermit has got his address has got his eye on his throat you're not getting to my throat but all day long day after day it's day 6 it's day 7 he's stupid frog down his throat ribbit ribbit and for the next 24 hours he's living this way except one thing Moshe comes to Paro at the end of the Makkah and says when do you want it to stop the moment Paro says I want it to stop Moshe goes out and it ceases the noise, the racket of billions and billions of frogs stop cease and there's deathly silence in Mitzrayim but not just deathly silence, chamorim, chamorim, piles and piles. They have to sweep out the carcasses from the living rooms, from the bedrooms. They have to sweep it into the street. And there were piles and piles of dead, smelly, disgusting frogs as one last sign that this was imaka. It was a plague. No injuries, no deaths, but a very clear sign that Hashem created the world, runs the world and maintains it. And each maka, if you study it, has such miracles within the miracles that it, it begs and strengthens the question as to how they didn't believe. Let's deal with kinim. Now, kinim, which is lice, doesn't sound particularly egregious, right? right what a lice, a little tiny little bug, right? You, you bring your daughter to school and they do the lice check and she has a lice, they bring home. What's the big deal, right? A little shampoo and you're good. Okay, so I'll tell you very quickly what lice are about. Your hair grows, the hair follicle grows out of a tiny little pore. Lice just love to claw right in there. They get their legs right in there. Then they get their mouth in and they put their eggs right in that little hole. Now, not a big deal if you got one or two. You scratch it, right? But what about if you got them from toe to head, all over your body? But not just all over your body, over every surface in the entire land. Where if you sit down, there are lights. And if you stand up, there's lights in your shirt, out of your shirt, wherever you go. You can't get these things off because you peel them off and more come on. And they're squirmy and they're gushy and they're in your skin from morning to night for seven days. Now it's a joke. It's a joke because again, there are no deaths. No one dies from lice inhalation. You don't, well, I don't know, they're pretty obnoxious when they get in your mouth and start digging in there, but, but no one dies. But Hashem's sending a very clear message. I'm playing with you. Listen up. Now, what was amazing about Kenan particularly was, and this is a medrash, the medrash says that Kenan was not just all over. It wasn't just wherever you sat, wherever you walked, it wasn't even... And sometimes it's cute to imagine different activities. I mean, excuse my vulgarity when you go to the bathroom, whatever, I don't know. But the you can imagine, was mighty uncomfortable being a mystery. But the point is, the Pesach says, it wasn't just wherever you went. The land, the earth itself, turned into kinim. Meaning, if you normally walk on nice, firm ground, that earth turned into three tzachim deep of these squirmy, squirmy, millions and millions of kinim, so that when you walked, it wasn't just that they crawled up, you could squish them and feel them. But the manager says an amazing thing happened. For many generations, there were fights between the Mitzrim and their neighbors as to what was Egyptian property. Where did the Egyptian boundaries end? Makkah of Kinim ended all machlokas and ended all the land battles. Why? 
because the definition of Mitzrayim was clearly delineated by this criteria. If it was Mitzrayim, it, the land turned into Kinim. If it was outside of Mitzrayim, it remained land. So it was almost like a laser. You could see the borders of Mitzrayim defined by the Makkah of Kinim, that the ground turned into lice. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that mind-boggling? What that means is, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years earlier, when you were battling, or your grandparents were battling about land, someone was paying attention. Someone was watching. And someone is the creator of the heavens and the earth. But this is something the Mitzvah existed during for seven days. They saw it, they experienced it, they lived through it. And if you look, each Maka has... We don't have time to do each one, but each makkah has miracles upon the miracles, inside the miracles. Shechin is one I love. Shechin is really boils. What's so bad about boils? You know, a little bit of boils. I always had a tough time. How do you do boils with the kids? You know, so day is easy. You do, you know, the Seder, we try to do each makkah. So blood's real simple. You put some jello in the water and pitch it. That's easy, right? So day, a frog, that's easy. Kinim, we have a little light. How do you do shechin? How do you do boils? So we found these patches, they're actually, whatever, we found patches, they put them on. But listen to what Shekin actually was. It wasn't a little blister. What it actually was is these large blisters where the inside is a buildup of fluid that pushes to get out. It pushes, pushes against the surface so that there's an intense pressure and there's a pain. So typically, what do you do in that case? You put a compress on the outside to dry it out. The only thing is that the mystery skin was dry so that the outside was exceedingly dry, the inside was exceedingly wet, and it was this huge pressure, and any time they moved, it would pop, it would burst. Their skin would burst open. They had these boils, again, from head to toe, covered. The Khartoumim could not come to Paro. They couldn't leave their house because they were covered head to toe with huge welts, with fluid inside, in intense pain. And every time they would move, they would pop, and they would sit, they'd pop, and they'd switch. You can't lie, you can't sit. For seven days and seven nights, you can find no comfort because your skin is erupting, and you're in intense pain. Until the maka ends, and then it's over. It's gone, as if it didn't happen. But it lasted a month. The maka itself lasted seven days, and there were three weeks of warning. Moshe came to Paro's palace every single day of the three weeks and warned, it's going to happen. And here are the details. It's going to happen in this way, at this time, exactly in this manner. And the Mitzrayim began to listen in the sense that they began to be aware that something was happening. Orov, wild beasts. So Rashi says it wasn't just lions and tigers. It was all types of scorpions, all types of snakes, all types, every imaginable type of wild beast. If you go to the zoo, or imagine opening all the cages, and they all run out and begin attacking. Now here's where things get a little bit more aggressive because the wild beast began biting. That means the Mitchell would lose a hand or lose a leg. The wild beast means the lions and tigers and bears would begin attacking the Mitchell. Our good buddy Muhammad was no longer so secure in his field. However, one thing of interest is that the Orov, the wild beast, did not go to Eretz Goshen. But not only didn't they affect the Jews in Eretz Goshen, they didn't affect the Jews at all. That meant our buddy Yitzhak, who was in the field drinking water, could walk through the streets 
And he'd say, here kitty kitty kitty, oh nice little kitty kitty. I remember, remember Roy and Siegfried, with it. I, I love those big cats. Here yeah, nice little boy, 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 boy. See Muhammad over there? Go, 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 go kitty, go, 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 go. And kitty would, ah! and Muhammad would have himself one major problem. But think about that. A bear, a polar bear, a grizzly bear, this huge 600 pound behemoth. And he come here boy, come here, come here. Stick him, stick him under his command. I mean, it's almost ludicrous. It's almost, and in fact, some Mitram were wise and got the message, so when, pa, when Moshe Ben warned and warned there's going to be these wild beasts attacking, they locked themselves in their house, closed up all the windows, boarded up all the entrances so that they couldn't be attacked because they understood that this stuff was serious. The Medrash tells us that any animals that they owned turned wild on them. I mean, Fido, their loyal dog that was a puppy, you know, since they had a little baby, turned and started biting his neck. Stop it, Fido! What's with you? You're and he began attacking his own animals that he brought up, began attacking him. Now again, it's not a plague in the sense of like death, destruction, but it's getting more aggressive and starting to get more clear. When the Makkah of Orov ends, very interestingly, Rashi points out, differently than, Makkah's, than the Makkah of Sardea. In the Makkah of Sardea, there were piles and piles of things. By the Makkah of Orov, when they died, all the animals disappeared. Why? Because Hashem did not want the Mitzrim to have Hanor, to have benefits from the hides, from the furs. So at this Makkah, instead of just like all the frogs dying and being piled in the street, they died but the carcasses weren't there, couldn't be found. And that's a, it's a rather amazing feat. It's a rather, it ain't every day that it happens. I think, man, right? I mean, so, did like at certain point, the Muslims say, wow, maybe, hey, hey, Muhammad, I got a thought here. Hey, maybe something's going on here, you know? Like there's some, there's a connection, Moses, God, the play, get it? Like maybe the creator of the heavens? No, no, this connection, no, you didn't get it. Okay, one or two more, only because we're allowed to have some fun forward. The forward is hail, right? So you're driving in the, you know, in the summer in your nice car, and you hear a tinkle, tinkle of a little hail on the, you know, on the hood of your car, so you turn up the radio a little bit louder and you no longer hear the hail. Well, that's a little different than borrowed in Mitzrayim, because borrowed in Mitzrayim were these softball-sized blocks of ice that came smashing down, and any animal left standing in the field died. What's interesting is that the Pesukim are very clear that the Yore Elokim of the Mitzrim, there were a few Yore Elokim, a few who feared God, they brought their animals in. But the majority of the Mitzrim left their horses, their cows, their cattle out in the fields and they died because they were bombarded, they were smashed by these huge hailstones that came down exactly at the moment when Hashem said they would. However, what was particularly unusual about Barad was that Barad was to destroy the remaining crops. Because what happened was the Barad, which was a large block of ice, inside the ice was a ball of fire. So that when the block of ice would smash down, it would break open, the fire that was inside would burn the remainders of the crop that hadn't been destroyed yet. And of course, Rashi got the obvious kasha. How's it possible? How is it possible to fire inside the ice? Either the water extinguishes the fire, there's no oxygen, or the fire 
melts and evaporates the water, but water and fire cannot coexist. That's Rashi's kasha, right? Rashi says, Teretz also shalom, they made peace. Now, doesn't that satisfy your curiosity? They made peace. I mean, like this, like, uh, you know, for 5,764 years, water and fire can't coexist. Also shalom, they made peace, right? The Arabs attacked, you know, kill each other for 300 years until the Jews come on the scene. Also shalom, they make peace. But gentlemen, water and fire cannot coexist. It's physically impossible to find the laws of nature. It just can't be. So why does the mystery wake up and say, oh my goodness, not only does the borage come, not only does it happen, not only does it stop at the border of Eretz Goshen, right? all the Jews live in Goshen, so it rains, smashing down hailstones to the border, but not to Goshen, because that's where the Jews live. But when the hailstone smashes down, there's fire inside the hailstone. How is it possible? Until Paro finally says, enough, Moshe Rabbeinu goes out, and Dominus Hashem, and the hailstones stop, in midair. Now that's impressive. Frozen in midair, right there. <laughs> and I imagine Muhammad standing. That one almost hit me. And it's fire burning. It was that shot of fire, water, blah, blah, blah. Whatever, you know, it's lucky, you know, whatever. Moses got he's a tricky kind of guy. And I'm not going to get scared by this stuff. You're not going to change my belief system based on a couple little tricks. I am way too wise and intelligent for that. I don't know. I don't know. You got to wonder at a certain point. One or two more. Let's do Choshech because that's uh, my kids love that one. Choshech. We do that. By the way, how do you do that one at the at the seder? Anyone how you, how you do Choshech? I have it worked out. Took me many years to figure this one out. We have to have timers on the dining room lights, so we time it just about the point we get to the makas and the lights go off and it works great the first night because right at ten ten when the makas supposed to happen. The light shut off, except the second night's always later. And we're just about to make kiddish, and boom, the lights go off, and my father gives me a dirty look. Like, this is what I send you to Yeshiva for, and I'm fine, whatever. But anyway, now, gentlemen, listen to what I'm saying here. Moshe Rabbeinu comes to Paro and says, there's going to be darkness, but it's going to be very dark. <laughs> very dark. How dark? It's going to be so dark that not only will you not be able to see, you will not be able to move. Now, Listen to this. I studied this maka for many years and I had the following kasha. The measures is very clear. The first three days of maka's choshef, it was pitch black. Complete blackness like in a dark room. When you go through the tunnels of a dark room and your mom is in with not a ray of light, it was complete pitch blackness for a mystery. For a Jew, broad daylight. Now that part I had a little trouble understanding. But the Psukim say the next three days were more intense darkness. The next three days, a Mitzri who was sitting down could not get up. A Mitzri who was standing up could not sit down. And in fact, the Medjus is very clear that if a Mitzri happened to be walking up a ladder at the time, and this, when the Makkah started, this was his position, that's where he stood for three days. And for many years, to be honest with you, I had the Kasha. I don't care how dark, very dark, so dark, so dark. Mr. Mitchell, can you just sit down? Just whoop, you'll find the ground, I promise you. If you just hit the bottom, you'll, you'll eventually find what's so dark that you can't just sit down, right? That means a good kasha. Says Ramban, you have to understand, this wasn't darkness. It wasn't darkness as in the absence of light. Oh, there was plenty of light. Haraya, the Jews saw clearly. What Hashem did was Hashem invested a new facet into air. The first three days, this element that was newly put into air prevented the penetration of light. 
It was like a new entity that was put into air so that light couldn't penetrate it. The light became thicker. The air became thicker. So the light couldn't penetrate it. If you were an Egyptian. But if you were a Jew, it was broad daylight. You could see right through it. The next three days, the air got thicker. It got so thick that if you were a mystery up here on the ladder, you were gelled into place as if, you know, when you pour the jello into the mold and eventually it gets cold. And that's where you were. And you couldn't move because you, you were gelled into place. For three days, you were on the chair, gelled down, standing up, gelled up. And you got a chance to do something which most human beings rarely do. And that's called thinking. You got a chance to say, something, something's going on. <laughs> I may not be the brightest triangle in the pyramid, but even I get it. There's, 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 there's something happening here. <laughs> what were you thinking? What was going on in your brain for three days when you're standing there? But the mission didn't get it. They didn't get it. They really, apparently, they really, really didn't get it. Now, Let's go one more. The final Makkah, which is the Makkah of Bechorus. Now, by Bechorus, already some Mitzrim did get it. Because the Medrash tells us very clearly that the Bechorus, the firstborn, came to Paro and said, this is crazy. I mean, listen, it's been ten months. Each Makkah, a week of the Makkah itself, three weeks of warning, that means they've lived through effectively ten months of obvious signs, but more than just obvious signs, Mitzrayim, was the wealthiest, most powerful nation in the world at the time. Its wealth was in its livestock, in its crops. It went from being the most wealthy, advanced society to in 10 months being impoverished. They were destroyed. Everything was wiped out. All of their livestock was dead. All of the crops were destroyed. There was nothing left. In fact, from the Matka 6 on, from month 6 on, there was no work. You couldn't go in the fields to plant. You couldn't take out your cattle to graze. The Mitzvah did nothing. They were unemployed for four months now. All they had to do was think about what's happening. And some of them got the message. The Bechorahs came to Paul and said, let's let them go. This is crazy. Every time Moshe says there's something going to happen, it happens. And now he's saying, we, the firstborn, are going to die. Will you please let them out? Not only didn't Paro agree, Paro said, I'm not doing it, and leave my palace. At which point the Bechorus gathered together an armed rebellion, and they attacked. They attacked Paro to attempt to dethrone him, and Paro's soldiers fought. There was a civil war. They fought and killed out the Bechorus. But to the last moment, they said, no, we're not letting the Jewish people go. Now, at this point, it's very interesting, because the Pasuk says, that ain't bias a shain shamais. There was no house that didn't have a dead person in it. And Rashi explains what that means is if there was an older boy in the house, he died. Imagining that there were five boys, one who was thirteen, one who was fifteen, one who was eighteen, and imagine for a minute that the eighteen year old was rather frail and his fifteen year old brother was bigger and stronger. Who died? The older one died. If there were twins and one came out first, three Minutes older, he died, but not the younger one. If there were older people in the house, if there was no Bukhar, but there was an older uncle, or let's say two older uncles, the older one, the one who was 78, not the one who was 76, died. And listen to this. 
if there was a house where there was no older male because the Bechor had died already the weasels went to the Besachorus, went to the grave, dug up the bones and brought the bones over to the house to deposit at the footstep of the house but it gets much worse because Rashi says over there that not only was it there was no house that didn't have a dead person in it there were many houses that had many dead people there were many Mitzrim houses where more than one Bukhar died where many in fact says Rashi there were houses where five died why? because Rashi explains the Mitzri women were promiscuous so <coughs> a woman might have had an affair she had a firstborn child from this guy a firstborn child from this guy, a firstborn child from this guy, and I want you to imagine from in here's Muhammad and his wife Cleopatra, the only Egyptian name I could find, and they're standing there, and all of a sudden at the Makkah, five sons drop dead. At which point Muhammad goes, Cleo, what does this mean? <laughs> and Cleo goes, but listen to what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that this Muhammad, now that he is, finally saw something. That, what did he see? 30 years ago, his wife had an affair. Now, nobody knew about it. Nobody saw it. 25 years later, she had an affair again. No one was there. There were no witnesses. Five years after that, and five years after that. But you know what Muhammad saw? Muhammad saw that someone did see. That in your secret hiding places, under the cloak of dark, there's a creator of the world who's present, watching, recording. But Muhammad didn't hear that as some highfalutin Muslim. He saw it before. He could feel it and palpably understand it because it was there in front of him. He saw a clear demonstration, not just that Hashem created the world and maintains the world, that Hashem watches over every facet of the Bria and is constantly present. So at this point, for sure, for sure, if you were a betting man, you would bet on the Ur of Egypt. I mean, they're going to open a branch there, they're going to be more Bali Chuba, more game than you've ever seen. I mean, they're going to pack it in every mission, he's going to give me the children, come on, let me get the gamers, come on, just, just sign me up, right? But the most amazing part is that not only didn't the Mitzrim all to a man say, Hashem will look him, fall on their face and say, Hashem is the creator of the heavens and the earth, when Hashem took the Bnei Yisrael out of Mitzrayim, Hashem did it again in a very particular manner. Now envision with me for a moment, 600,000 men between the ages of 20 and 60. If you add the women, you're dealing with 1.2 million. Add the younger children, add the older adults, you're talking a mass of approximately 3 million people leaving a nation. As a nation leaving another nation, marching out into the Midbar, but Hashem takes them out on a long journey that was closed in on itself, that it circled back, because Paro had sent out spies. So that by day three, when the Bnei Israel seemed to have been lost, when they circled back, Paro's spies came running back and said, you see, they're lost in the Midbar, they're lost in the desert. At which point Paro himself mounted his chariot, took his horse, tied it to his chariot, led his soldiers out to chase down the Bnei Yisrael into the Midbar. Leading the remainders of his army, he chases down the Bnei Yisrael, and the next part becomes more amazing and more intensely amazing than before, because the Kali Yisrael were led out by Anne Kovut. Anne Kovut are these pillars, pillars of clouds. 
these pillars of clouds which led the Bnei Yisrael out when the Mitzrim actually chased down the Bnei Yisrael. And if you can imagine, there's the Yam, and the Bnei Yisrael are backed up against the Yam. The Mitzrim are chasing, the Anne covered moves forward, all the way from the front, moves all the way to the back of the Bnei Yisrael, stops over there, so that the Mitzrim try to charge, and they get stopped by a wall of clouds. You ever fly, fly in a plane? And it gets like foggy outside, you can't see because you fly through clouds. Clouds, you know, clouds are nothing. There's no substance to a cloud. Right? The foggy day, fog is a low-hanging cloud. Right? You can't stop a chariot pulled by six horses with a little cloud. Right? Well, there's a wall of cloud and boom, they stopped dead and they couldn't advance. They couldn't advance and were stuck there cold halayla the entire night. And as a matter of fact, the Ramban says something fantastic. The Ramban says that Kriyas Yamsuf was not an instantaneous sudden splitting of the Yam. The way Hashem split the Yamsuf was in a very particular way. That night, when the Mitzrim met up against the Anne Kovet and got blocked, they began blowing an eastern wind. Somewhere from behind the Mitzrim, a wind began blowing. It started slow at first, and then began picking up intensity, and then began gale force and started stronger and stronger. And if you would look out at the wide expanse of the Yam, what you would start to see is that little furrows, little kind of ditches, were being started to be dug out of the, out of the sea. The ditches started getting a little deeper and a little deeper, and as the wind got stronger, they got deeper and dug out further and further, until... By morning, the sea was no longer sea, but there were these huge, wide expanses dug out from the Yam. And the Ramban asked the question, why do it that way? And not only why did Hashem do it that way, why is the Pasuk particular to tell us that Hashem split the Yam, Baruch Kadim Azla Kolalayla? Why did Hashem split the sea with an eastern wind the whole night? Says the Ramban for a very particular purpose. <clears throat> because Hashem wanted to split the yam with the wind so that the Mitzvah would have what to be tola on. They'd have what to hang their hat on. They could say it wasn't Hashem, it was the wind. Says the Ramban, even though the wind can't split the sea, but there was enough there for the Mitzvah to say, hmm, it was the wind that did it. And in fact, here's the part that you have to really, really open your, your mind's eye to understand. <clears throat> when the Bnei Yisrael run into the Yam. They run into the Yam and they get about to midpoint when they're about halfway through the Yam, the Anne covered lift up. And this is what Muhammad and Nahmud and Anwar and every other Egyptian sees. He sees a very, very wide expanse. You see, you're dealing with three million people. If you're dealing with three million people and you're splitting them into twelve separate compartments, you're dealing with each one, each shaver is maybe 200,000 people, I don't know, a huge number of people. It's not like a little passageway. There were wide, wide expanses, wide channels. And there were twelve of them. And typically when you go into the ocean, you'll, you know, if you walk out a little bit, the, the ocean floor is mucky and mired, you get all these claws, all these things on the bottom. The bed of the ocean now is smooth as glass. It was paved. But not only was it paved, Hashem Kaviyachov had a problem. Hashem was afraid that if Shevet Shimon would be walking into the ocean over here, and Shevet Levi was on this side, and Shevet Ruvian was on this side, Shevet Shimon would see that they're going to the ocean, but they'd be blocked from seeing every other Shevet, and they might think the rest of the Shvatim died. Therefore, Hashem arranged it that the normally murky water would be clear as glass. 
so that Shevet Shimon, who were walking through over here, could look right and see Shevet Ruvain. They could lift, look left and see Levi's and Yehudas and Dun and Naphtali. They could see hundreds and hundreds of feet of straight through pure lucid glass. Even though the sea, obviously, is not clear. When the clouds lifted and the Mitzvah saw this, what did they do? Did they fall on their face and say, Wow, Kriya's Yamsa, the greatest miracle shown to man, Hashem Elohim? That was not their response. Their response was, Let's go! And they charged into the Yamsuf. Almost an insane activity. They charged in. Let's go! And the entire remainder of the Mitzri army chases into the Yam. They chase into the Yam and the Bnei Israel see that they're being chased. The Bnei Israel run quickly. When the last member of the Jewish nation gets out on the other side, at that point the game changes because the nicely paved road now turns back to muck and mire the wheels of the chariots start getting heavy the hoofs of the horses start getting stuck and then at a certain point the actual murky mire gets baked to clay and the wheels are stuck the hooves of the horse can't move and at that moment Muhammad and Nachman and every other mystery looks up and when they look up they see from floor up hundreds and hundreds of feet. You see, the ocean isn't 10 feet deep, nor 20 feet deep, nor 50 feet deep. From ocean floor, upwards, 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 a straight, huge, tall, tall wall, maybe hundreds of feet high. And at the given moment, when Hashem decided it was time, the walls came crashing down, and it was the end of the mystery people. And, when you read this, when you read Chomish and Rashi, when you read what's going on, at a certain point you have to say to yourself, what were they thinking? They were reasonable, intelligent people. They weren't demented. They weren't insane. They weren't cartoon comic book characters. They were real people, thinking, living people, who did something that was so insane, so unintelligible, so, something you can't, can't even relate to, so you have to ask yourself, my high, what's pshat? So gentlemen, I think the pshat is very, very simple. And that pshat is the mistake that my friend made many years earlier. Do not think, do not think that miracles make you believe. If a person has set his agenda not to believe in a creator, all the miracles in the world, the most obvious, glaring, clear demonstrations of Hashem's existence will not budge him from his opinion. You could hit him over the head with a sledgehammer's worth of proof. It won't budge him if he doesn't want to see that. And why not? Because that is the way our Creator created us. When God created the human being, Hashem created us with this amazing capacity called free will. And to allow for free will, Hashem had to give us this capacity to believe what we want to believe. Not to believe what's intellectual, not to believe what's honest, not to believe what our eyes see, but to believe what we want to believe. Because if it wasn't that way, then it would be impossible for a person to ever deny the existence of God. A person would wake up in the morning, open his eyes and see a sunset, he'd see a sunrise, he'd see a tree, he'd see an apple, he'd see a fruit, he'd see such vastness, such sophistication, see a world and wonder, and he'd say, wow, of course there's a creator, but there would be no free will. Because it's so obvious, it's so glaringly clear that he'd be forced to see that. And there's no avoda, there's no work, there's no fight, 
there's no free will, and hence there's no purpose in creation. To allow for free will, Hashem gave us this capacity to believe whatever we wish to believe, to create insane, insane, imaginative, comically imaginative scenes, and actually believe that they're true. To say to ourselves, that's the way it is, I believe it. And no matter how insane, no matter how ludicrous, the human being was given the capacity to believe that. And my friends, I want you to know, I got a chance to see this up front and personal when my daughter was born. <clears throat> my daughter Racheli was born on Yom Kippur. Now she was already, we already brought her, we had a family, a few kids already, and our kids were already old enough and mature enough to understand that there was a new family member being born. And for a number of months before the birth, we made it sort of a family project to study the development of the embryo. And we had, there was a CD called The Nine-Month Miracle, and we actually traced week by week, month by month, and you have to see the technology now is so amazing. They take pictures in the womb of the development of the embryo, and you'll see colored pictures at two weeks, four weeks, at two months, by four months, you see the entire leg is formed with toes. You can see the earbud. The eye is almost completely formed. There is the eye with the retina, with the lens, with the, the whole apparatus is formed. The liver, the pancreas, you can see the sophisticated, you can see the brain cells. It's all formed, but the only thing is that four months, the baby is about six inches tall. That's how big it is. But you see tiny, tiny, tiny little hands, and tiny, tiny, tiny little fingers, and tiny, tiny little toes, and tiny earbuds, and tiny eyes, and it's, it's, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And as a family, we were studying this, and as, again, as it happens to be, Racheli was born in Yom Kippur, and ironically enough, because of circumstances, despite real efforts not to, I ended up driving my wife on Yom Kippur, because it was that late, and... I'm driving them Kippur and we just barely get there and we rush into the, into the, into the room. And Baruch Hashem, Racheli came out healthy and well, but I gotta tell you, I was high. I was mamish high. This was from Kippur and I was like, I was singing Shevach Wadalabori and I must have been a little too exuberant. And I probably said something like, what a miracle, wow! At which point the nurse next to me said, yeah, isn't it amazing how nature evolved? At which point I wanted to grab a lady, are you insane? What did your mouth just say? What did you say? Isn't it amazing how nature evolved? Lady, are you... But listen to what I'm saying, gentlemen. Listen to what I'm saying. If you want to know how ludicrous that statement is, I want to give you a challenge. Find a four-month-old baby. Find a four-month-old baby and you'll find an amazing thing. My son now, Baruch Hashem, is four-month-old. And I can tell you this from first-hand experience. He needs a passy. If he doesn't have a pacifier in his mouth, he cries. So if the pacifier in his mouth is happy and quiet, and if the pacifier is out of his mouth, he cries. Well, lo and behold, you put the pacifier in, turn your back, and the pacifier is out. So you put the pacifier back in, you turn your back, and the pacifier is back out. And you wonder, gee golly, what's going on? And then you make the amazing discovery. What happens is that Yoel, four months old, has got the passy and he's real happy, and then his hand somehow finds the passy. But he's not bright enough to understand that it's his hand. It's his hand that took the pathy out, and he can't for the life of him figure out how to get the thing from there back to here. Huh? 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 And he cried, wah, wah, wah. So he takes the path and put it back, and a moment later, <laughs> He's too dumb to get it. Now, gentlemen, listen to what I'm saying. I don't mean to be funny, but they just sent up a mission to Mars. 
And this is amazing because what they wanted to do is they couldn't bring back rock samples, but they wanted to study the minerals on, on Mars, right? So what they did was very clever. They designed robotics. They designed basically a robotic that would travel across Mars on wheels, radio controlled. They would bring it up to a sample and it would take pictures. <coughs> so they would radio back pictures of the different minerals on Mars and they'd be able to just look for searches for life or whatever they're searching for. The only problem is that much of Mars is covered by a huge, huge layer of dust. I mean, ain't nobody living up there. It's the dust off the <laughs> exterior over there, right? So it's layers and layers of dust. So the problem is they couldn't take pictures of the minerals. So what they did was they equipped this robotic with an amazing feature. It's got an arm that lifts up and when the robot, when it drives close to the rock sample, the arm sticks itself out, it flips ahead, and then there's a drill. There's a drill on the end, so when it goes up here, the drill starts spinning. It actually eats into the rock face. It, it, it cuts through the rock face, then it retracts, then it flips back over. Now the camera part takes a picture, click, and then it moves over to the next rock and does the same thing. Millions and millions of dollars, an entire team of scientists at Honeybee to design it. And the amazing thing about it is that they say that if it works three times, it's a successful mission. Now think about that. The next time you have faced with the great dilemma of how do I get my hand to reach into my pocket and pull out a quarter. Now let's understand this. I can probably do this time after time. Mamish, without even trying. I, yeah, look, I did it. I just did that. I can do that time after time. I can reach into my pocket and pull out a quarter and almost never miss. And listen to what I'm saying to you folks. There are 48 muscles in your forearm. Do you know what coordination, do you know what's involved in sophistication of the brain waves traveling? You have to send a message from your, the cortex that controls movement. You have to send a message down to begin lifting up. You have to move it over. You have to move it out. Now we don't think about the 48 muscles that are involved, but watch a baby. Watch an infant at four months old when he can't get, he just can't get the pacifier to his mouth. First, he doesn't even know it's his arm. Because his brain has to discover that. And then he has to understand, he has to learn the coordination, he has to learn the control. And they can't get this minor robotic to work more than three times, if it's a dozen times, it's phenomenally successful. And I told you there was a different truth on evolution. I said something there that's important to understand. They say that when they talk about programming, when they talk about programming, they measure it now in man years. So for instance, if you want to know how much is involved in writing the average software program, it's measured in 50 man years, 100 man years. That means they sit down 100 men for one year or two years to write the program. They talk about Microsoft Word, which is in the hundreds and hundreds of man years. They say that for a space shuttle, the amount of programming that's written to all the different parts and all the different features, it took 22,000 man years to write all of the code. Gentlemen, I present to you that there's far more code written in one DNA cell. And I'll explain to you how that is. A human being, you and I, start from one ovum, one woman's egg cell and one sperm cell. When the sperm cell impregnates, when it fertilizes that egg, at that point there's a division, another division. By eight cells, every one of those cells are identical, exactly alike. No one different than the other. But yet within each cell is all of the coding 
all of the computer programming to design the future body, including the heart, including the pancreas, including the liver, including the blood system, including the neurotransmitters, including all that's needed to create a brain of a hundred billion neurons that's able to control the most sophisticated thoughts, feelings, emotions, and all of it is created within the womb, away from human eyes seeing. And there was a woman who sat there at the birth of my daughter and said the words, Wow! Isn't it amazing how nature evolved? Lady, are you insane? What kind of drugs are you on? How could you look at what's such an obvious overt miracle that's so beyond any human being's comprehension and tell me to just, well, you know, lucky spinner the dice that came out there. You know, a couple of cells back together, you know, one after the other, the fingernails are different than the heart zone. Lady, what are you doing? What, what, what planet are you on? And gentlemen, that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. Says of and Wasserman, if you want to answer the old, old kasha. The old kasha is how could the Torah command the person to believe? The mitzvah of the Torah, command in the Torah to believe in Hashem. Says of it makes no sense. Mamish makes no sense. If I believe in Hashem, I don't need a mitzvah. And if I don't believe in Hashem, how is a commandment going to change my mind? I don't believe. Oh, and I want you to believe. But I don't. Well, I command you. I command you to believe. It's not possible. It's not within human behavior to believe something you don't believe. Says Rabbi Hanan, that's a mistake. The mitzvah of Amunah is not believe in Hashem. The mitzvah of Amunah is be honest. Be critically honest. Put away your agenda. Put away your outside interests. Ask yourself one single question. What do my eyes see? What does my mind tell me? If I put away the therefores and the what ifs, and if I accept the gods and there's this and there's that I have to do and I can't do, if you put away all that stuff, look at a sunset, look at a sunrise, look at a plant, look at a flower and say, what does this mean? Is it possible that it just happened on its own? If a person does that critical step of being honest, then they come to a muna. They come to a tremendous, tremendous level of belief. Now my friends, I have to tell you something. What we are commanded with is growth. A person at 13 is commanded to believe in God, but a person at 23 is supposed to have a fundamentally different understanding of his belief than he had at 13. And when he's 33, he's supposed to have a much deeper and much more broad understanding of his Creator. And when he's 53 and when he's 63, his broadening and deeper understanding is supposed to continue and to continue. And unfortunately, many people we know don't grow. They remain stagnant. I've been at the Seder of people. I've been at the Seder. Seder is a night of growing in a muna. If you use it properly, you're thinking, you're contemplating, you're eating the mass and imagining what it was like to be in the time leaving with the sacks of dough on our back. You're imagining the moral, by your moralist and you're living through it. I've been at the Seder where people had a nice little contest at the end. By the Atikoman, the whole family would get together to see who could make the roundest circle. And they sit there, tell me, oh, yours is round, oh, you got a turn over there, you got a, I, I got the round, I got the round, yeah, mine's round, oh, you, you, you're the winner, you got it, you got the message of Pesach, eat the round, this lappy come right. Now, don't get me wrong, the Seder, it's with family, it's supposed to be happy, and there's a simcha, but there's a real purpose, and the purpose is growth, the purpose is growth, and it's growth in Amunah, but to grow in Amunah is not something that comes automatically, not something that comes easily. If a person does the work necessary, 
a person does the work necessary, they come to Amunah. And the Rishonim tell us the greatest work that a human being can do to come to Amunah is study nature. Study the world we live in. Open a biology book. Open a chemistry book. See the vastness and sophistication of the systems of this world and that will bring you to Amunah. If you're honest. But if you're not honest, it won't help. You could be a mystery and live through Dams, Radeya, Kinim. You could live through the light. You could live through the frogs. You could live through the blood. You could live through Matas Choshech, darkness that you can't move in. For three days, you could be edged, unmoving, and not get the point if you don't want to get the point. But if a person is honest, and a person wants to see, and a person puts away his agenda and studies the Bria, studies the world, takes the mitzvah that Hashem gave us to grow in the moon and uses them properly, understands what a Seder is about, studies the parsha, studies Chumash before the Seder, studies the Seder and uses that time appropriately, then they grow in a moon level after level until when they grow, it's not just physically, it's emotionally and spiritually, they become a different human being and they reach heights on this planet. You've been listening to The Schmooze, presented by Teferis B'nai Torah. For more information on The Schmooze, please visit us at www.theschmooze.com, where you can download all the schmoozing free of charge, as well as view source sheets and address questions or comments on this or any other schmooze. The Schmooze is completely funded by private donations. We need your help to continue our work. All donations are tax-deductible and count as miser. Please help us help others by calling 866-613-TORAH. That's 866-613-TORAH. Or you can make your donation right on the web at www.theschmooze.com.